Hi there, I am Luis Cortez, a reporter for Golden Gate Express. I stumbled upon the concept of AI and generative AI in late 2020 when ChatGPT gained popularity. This led me to ponder whether San Francisco State University had any policy regarding AI and the university's stance on the usage. In this podcast, you'll hear from a senior director of the Center of Equity and Excellence in Teaching and Learning, CETL, Anusha Chaudhary, who is part of leading discussion on AI with faculty, professor using AI as a central topic of a unit in one of her courses. Part of the class, Cassandra Soborowski allows students to create graphic novels, videos, and performances using text-to-image generators as a starting point and add their elements using Photoshop or other tools. They can also generate music with AI. You'll also hear from students who use AI in various ways such as Akani James, a sophomore environmental studies major who uses ChatGPT as a tool to help him do his homework, and Mikey Pagan, a senior master's of art in comparative literature student who doesn't see large language models like ChatGPT presenting much danger to comparative world literature in the sense that he doesn't think large language models are advanced enough to replace the work that they do. How big of an impact have you seen AI programs like Bing Image Generator affect your field of work? It's early to say how it's going to impact the field. This is Cassandra Soborowski, a lecturer in the College of Liberal and Creative Arts. Soborowski deals with AI generative images in one of her courses. But we have the discussion going in our Intro to Digital Media class, Art 210. The students are currently doing a, a unit called Is AI Art Art in parentheses in the context of the history of conceptual art. We look at how postmodernism broke down ideas of authorship and originality. We look at old Dadaist photo montages. And I make the argument that the image generators are basically making a very, very fast photo montage. We talk about articles like Walter Benjamin and Bill Nicholas, who builds on Walter Benjamin. We talk about the aura of the original versus the reproduction and can you obtain an aura with digital art. The students have their choice, the graphic novels, the video or performance, using the text to image generators as a starting point and then they can add their own things in Photoshop or they can use what they come up with with just the computer. They can add text using ChatGPT to write a story or they can write their own story or they can use ChatGPT and edit it. You know, use ChatGPT as the generative starting point. Same with the music. They can generate the music with AI or make their own sounds or grab sounds from the web. All I ask is that they be honest in what their process was so that we can learn from them. We are through this project trying to figure out how might AI affect the professions because right now it's kind of early to say. We are in a privileged position as fine art that we don't necessarily expect to make a career from our art. We can play and we can experiment and we can see, is this art? We can ask that question. We can ask, does AI provide a generative tool, a starting point to spark our imaginations? And then we can build from there. Is it useful as a tool for making art? Will it become its own art form with its own set of criteria? Like photography wasn't accepted as an art form at first. It was cheating. It takes days, weeks, months, years to do a representational painting to record a historical event. Now you just take a snapshot and you're going to tell me that's art, put it in that context as well. How did photography change painting? It liberated painting to be about paint, thick, goopy, impasto material paint, right? It didn't make painting go away. Will AI change the professions? I think there's going to be a renaissance of the hands-on. What can we still do better than computers? The unit 
210. Where did the idea come from? Told my friend, I want to make a film about this bridge, but it's not there. How do I make a documentary about something that's not there without resorting to cheesy Ken Burns, take Library of Congress photos and pan and scan and zoom. And then I thought, oh, this is when the generative tools were just coming out. And I thought I can offer it up to AI and use the collective memory of the internet to construct what might have been there in 1976 when this bridge got blown up. That's how I started, just putting in all these prompts about grandmas and dolmas and grape leaves and Brady Street Bridge is what it was called, the Brady Street Bridge and the Monongahela and bringing in the spirit of Algonquin indigenous people that I could feel or believed I could feel as a little kid. If I took a photograph now, I wouldn't necessarily see any Algonquin in there, but I can add a little peppering of Algonquin through the text generator and just bring awareness to who had inhabited the land. That's how I got started. And I thought, I want to teach this. And I also felt that, you know, students always inspire us as professors. The work that they do gives us ideas and hopefully we give them ideas. And so I thought it could be a really fun back and forth exchange. This is what I'm doing with AI. What are you coming up with AI? Can I give you ideas? Can you give me ideas? Can we cross fertilize ideas? So that's how it got started with this memory of the Brady Street Bridge that isn't there anymore. As far as the quality of the work that it produces, what would you say that is? Is it good quality? Do you feel like there's still room for improvement? First, you have to define quality, right? Which is such a subjective term. The different generators generate different sorts of imagery. Dream AI, for example, there's a free off-the-shelf version that allows you to do so much. If you pay, you can do more. You can change the aspect ratio, for example. But it's a cheap program and sometimes it makes really messed up, fragmented things. For my piece about the bridge, I really like that because it's like the fragmentation of memory. It's how memory works. I don't exactly remember from when I'm five, you know, I'm pooling, maybe mashing up parts of memories that aren't quite right. You know, the way I'm reconstructing the memories is like combining memories. And so I liked how it was kind of messed up. To me, that was quality in the context of what I needed. Then there's some things like Mid Journey, which make very beautiful, in quotes, images, very dreamy. If you were an illustrator, quote unquote, good illustrations. But to me, it almost looks too contrived. Most people with mid-journey makes really good, you know, high quality images. But to me, it lacks authenticity because it's too perfect. And then you have Dolly that are kind of in between. And now Photoshop has, well, Adobe has created Firefly. And this actually is a change between last semester when I taught this and this semester while I'm teaching it right now as we speak or in the middle of this unit. As of this semester, Adobe has created Firefly and Firefly is integrated into Photoshop. You can generate things in Photoshop. And what I'm finding it to be useful for is Dolly, for example, makes a square. Dream AI, the free version, makes a portrait orientation image. If you're making video, the aspect ratio for HD video is 1920 pixels wide, 1080 pixels high. I can pull that square from Dolly and put it into Photoshop, then change the size of my canvas to match video aspect ratio and then select those white spaces and generate a missing part. So I start out with a square and now I have a white rectangle behind it. I can extend my image into that white space and Photoshop does that really, really well. I don't think Photoshop is quite there or specifically Firefly integrated into Photoshop. I don't think it's quite there in terms of 
scraping the web. I wanted to go back to what you said a little bit earlier about how photography was looked at as cheating. Has there been other aspects or things not to this magnitude in prior history where it challenges how you define art? Much of modernism and postmodernism did that. And we talk about that in this unit. Way back in the 19-teens, Marcel Duchamp was asking, what is art? And took a found object, a urinal, put it on a pedestal in a gallery and said, okay, now it's art because it's on a pedestal in a gallery. So you can talk about people like that. You can talk about in the 80s and early 90s, postmodernists, again, challenging authorship and originality. In class, we talk about Sherry Levine, who would take the work of other artists and hang them in the museum and put her name on them. So she would take a piece by Donald Judd, who was a minimalist sculptor, and put by Sherry Levine. She'd put a Dorothea Lange and put by Sherry Levine. She actually took Marcel's urinal and did it in gold and gold patina and said by Sherry Levine. So she was questioning, you know, what is authorship? What is originality? We talk about people like Morimura, a postmodern photographer, and he would take very famous paintings, like a Manet painting from French post-impressionists, or he would take a Van Gogh painting, and he would pose himself in the painting. Like he'd recreate the painting, but he'd take a photograph of himself in the position of a character in the painting. He was Japanese, and he did this a lot to call attention to issues of race and gender, expose some of the race and gender subtexts of the old master painting. How much was original? Because he was stealing stuff from the old masters. And then we talk about the Renaissance, the European Renaissance. They stole from Greece and Rome. They took all this stuff from Greek art and Roman art, was that cheating? We called it a renaissance, right? This mashup that they created of old styles. There's a thread of postmodernism that says nothing we create is original because everything we think we're making on our own, generating by ourselves, is really a filtering of all that we've ever taken in. All the TV, all the images, all the poetry, everything we've ever taken in, it's mixing up in our brains and coming out in our art. It's not original either, it's coming from somewhere. So we talk about all that. In that context, is it cheating to use an image generator? Or I say the poetry is in the prompt. Maybe the image isn't the art. Maybe the art is the prompt and how well the prompt produces a dream state or a particular scene. These are all open questions. There is no hard, fast answer. It's super subjective, but these are some of the things that we are talking about in class. I can tell you last semester at the beginning, we posed the question, is AI art in the context of the history of conceptual art? And the students were like, I'd say two thirds were like, no, it's not art. One third were like, well, maybe. And then by the end of the, the unit, the needle moved. Half the people said, okay, it is art, but it's probably gonna have its own criteria, its own art form, like photography became its own art form. And then there was about half that were still, it's a gimmick. It's not art. Another person we talk about is Solowit, who was an artist in the 60s, 70s, who offered instructions to museums. Instead of going to the museum and building, he usually did very like geometric, post-minimal work. Instead of building the sculpture or doing the wall painting, he would give a set of instructions to somebody else to do it. And though that hands-on quality of the art was removed. And so we see that again with ChatGPT. It's cheating because you didn't actually do the brushstrokes. Well, Solowit didn't touch his work either. He handed off a set of instructions to an assistant or a curator or a museum preparer. There's a precedent there. That's one of the arguments that I make that there is precedent in conceptual art for everything that people complain about in AI art, saying it's not art, it's not real, it's cheating. The whole idea of breaking copyright. We go back to authorship and originality in the context of capitalism. This idea of authorship and originality is how you make money off the art. You wouldn't worry about losing income from your art. And then we 
we talk about how my AI art open source. If you're writing code to make a lot of money or if you're write, writing open source code, there's a values question there. Are you wanting to make money for yourself? Are you wanting to share for the contribution of knowledge and the building of knowledge within a community, right? So you could say the same thing about the images that are being scraped from the text generators, for example. The thing is, and I do think this is a valid point, is people don't have agency as of now, and this is changing, they don't have agency to opt out of their work being scraped. And I do think policy decisions will kind of steer that way because right now there's no way of saying I don't want my work to be part of this data set. And again, I think that's going to change pretty fast. Anusha Chattery is the Senior Director of the Center of Equity and Excellence in Technology and Learning, CETL. This interview was right after the second of three CETL discussion circles on AI. We have a series of three discussion circles this semester. The first one was on academic integrity around use of AI in the classroom. So we focused on students. And today, the discussion circle, which unfortunately got cut short because of a fire alarm, but we could go one hour. It was really interesting. It was more of a focus on how faculty can use AI and specifically taking the example of ChatGPT. And third one, which is next month, November 9th, will be looking at all the other tools uh, that are, that students would be using that faculty should know about. So far, the big issues that have come up is that we do not have a good way to detect AI. So our students here use Turnitin to turn their written work in, and most instructors use Turnitin for grading purposes. But Turnitin, the AI detection tool within Turnitin is not perfect. In fact, it things uh, second language learners a lot more. It's not equitable tool, which is why we wanted to have that conversation with faculty that where are you coming from? Are you using ChatGPT or AI in your classroom? If you are, how are some ways you're seeing if students are following your instruction or if you know, they're not holding the highest academic integrity in the classroom. But more importantly, people who are not using AI, they're asking students to turn in their work through Turnitin and then using it as a punitive tool that if anyone uses it, they're going to get zero. That's problematic because it's not a perfect tool. So, and there might be ma many false positives. We wanted to use these discussion circles to educate faculty, as well as give them some guidance on what can we do in the classroom. We can use it as a starting point and then show students that their voice is important. They need to do this on their own because it's like a canned thing that comes out. It, it's not you or that it could be a starting point, but show the process of your writing. You know, how are you going to engage with it, change it, and then give us the outcome in a different way. There are many ways in which faculty can really teach students how to engage with these tools. And today uh, we talked about how faculty can use this in their own lives, which was interesting how people talked about creating lesson plans. And most of them said, oh, we just wanted to see what chat gave us for lesson plan. And maybe only one part of it is useful or maybe gave us ideas of what we can do in the class. It's not something we are going to follow to the T, but just as a starting point, very similar to what we, you would do with the student in the classroom. The other things that came up was integrity issues. When do we use it? When do we not? Is it okay to use it for evaluations? Is it okay to use it for academic research? Is it okay to use to write abstracts? Those kinds of things were just coming up. I wish we could continue that, but we will be doing more webinars and engaging faculty more in these uh, discussion circles.
You said there's no good program out there to detect it. What did those discussions, did those discussions have a solution or what was the alternative you were discussing? So the solution which we are moving towards is maybe turning off the AI detection tool uh, within Turnitin, but there are faculty who are using it. It first needs to be a little bit more widespread, not maybe, we won't ever get to consensus, but maybe more people saying that this is not useful, maybe we should do some other stuff. You talked a little bit about students and teaching them how to use it. How do you feel like general AI has shaped educators' view on students' work? I have to give this analogy of a calculator. When we were growing up, we were not allowed to use calculators. We had to do mental math and math in the head. I think of the AI tools in a very similar fashion. As they come out, we know that students are much more, much closer to technology than a lot of faculty. So students will experiment. They will look at it. They will use it. They will try to push the boundaries. We know that. So I think uh, knowing that and knowing where you're coming from can help you think about your class. You can't be an ostrich. You can't just, I'm not going to engage with this. I don't know anything about it. In those kinds of cases, there may be students who will push boundaries. So how do we actually use this tool, which can help some people? You know, there are many people with a lot of neurodivergent issues need a starting point. This could be a good starting point. People can be shown the process of writing. And I think instructors need to start thinking about what is learning going to be like. Don't ask for definitions because definitions are now so easily available. Think of more critical thinking, you know, your own experience, right from your point of view kind of assignments that will make more sense. Shaping a lot of different aspects about education. What is your position on using AI, general AI? Is it just limited to chat GPT? No, that's what we are going to start exploring different tools on the November 9th CETL discussion circles. Bing will be all pervasive because Bing Chat is a Microsoft product and San Francisco State uses Outlook uh, enterprise system. So we've turned it off for now. But as soon as Bing Chat is turned on, it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be in your email. It's going to be in whatever Microsoft product you're going to use. It's going to be there. We actually have CETL in collaboration with Academic Technology. Uh, we are coming out with the AI website, which will be ai.sfsu.edu. We're planning to launch it in mid-November. That will contain a lot of guidance around use in the classroom. It'll contain ethical use of AI and critical AI. So equity issues around AI. Contain all the different tools and new stuff. We'll ask people to engage with us uh, around AI. Is anything official set in the window where in a year a restriction on student use, if so, just involves San Francisco State or is this a CSU issue? They're the final say on every campus usage of it. A lot of campuses have their own decision making. Many campuses around CSU as has actually turned off the AI detection tool. Here, CETL and AT are leading the conversation around AI. We have an internal AI task force. What we we're doing is we're trying to bring community together. We're not doing this just by ourselves. That's why we created the discussion circles. We're trying to get people to come to the table. We're going to take this discussion to our January retreat. People around the university will be participating and for the first time we are hoping students will participate. We are taking a community approach towards this with CETL taking the on guiding instructors how to deal with this in the classroom.
with students. Have you seen an issue of people using AI in the discussion? Professors, anybody said, hey, I found a student who used it for my work. Yes, many. And that's why instructors wanted some solutions to, okay, if we don't use AI detection tools, what can we do? How do we know if students are using AI? We know the students didn't write this because it looks too canned. What can we do when we see you know, students are using ChatGPT. And the Student Conduct Office was also in our discussion circles. And if there are academic integrity issues, some faculty report them, some faculty don't. Some faculty try to deal with students themselves. But this is going to be become a huge issue, and which is why we're trying to educate faculty. We want to de-escalate these situations when they arise. Where do you see AI, general AI, and ChatGPT in the next five to ten years, and how do you see it impacting education? This is just a new revolution. We don't know where it's going to lead us, but I think we have to engage with it. We have to influence it. We have to make policies around it. It's just still so early, but I I think there are good things that are coming off it as well. I see the positives of AI, that the optimist in me, I'm never shocked from using technology in the classroom, always try to use it in different ways. So I think that's where we need to go and that's where we'll be going. Say a student thinks they could get away with using it by, hey, I'm going to not copy and paste it, but I'm going to copy some of it and change everything. Does that, has that been discussed about, is that ethical to do at all? Attribute. Some of it was generated using ChatGPT. Have you heard of any instances of that being done at all? Professor comes out and say, hey, I got a student who turned in this and that they cited ChatGPT. I've seen policies on syllabi. Professors saying, give me the starting point with ChatGPT. Here are the prompts. Give me the starting point. Tell me how you changed it. They're saying, yes, give me the ChatGPT. I don't think there has been that kind of openness on turn it in and say it was generated by ChatGPT. I don't think that we are still there yet. If you're going to use it, use it, but change it enough, we would not plagiarize. We would paraphrase it in our own words. Similar kind of guidance has gone out so far. Do you feel like that's part of the stigma from a student's viewpoint? Because I've talked to some students, they kind of don't know that line between whether or not it's ethical to use it. That might be the stigma of, hey, if I put down that I use it, my teacher might look at me differently. So if you ever feel that way as a student, you shouldn't be doing it in the first place, right? You can do better. We are only just about got to the point where students understand what plagiarism is. I have had so many students did not know what plagiarism was. I have to engage with them to know what plagiarism is. Quoting, citing, all these things. We've had so many people do cut paste from the internet and hand in a paper. Been common even till the last semester that I taught. If you're not going to do plagiarism and you know that that's wrong, then don't do this because this is wrong. You're you're copying something. Students just need to understand that difference, that they are copying something. They are using some something else. It's not their work. Some people have talked about how that would impact them in the future, you know, because you come to school to learn a skill to, you know, produce in the real world. If they don't essentially do that skill, what are they actually learning? Is that also being discussed about teaching people and students of the usage is really taking away from what they could offer the world. And that goes back to what I was saying, that depends on the class that you're in. If it's a writing class, don't use it because you're not going to learn what you're there for. If it's more of a applied class where content matter doesn't 
matter that much that's the starting point and you have to apply and do stuff with it authentic about what they're here for then by all means go use it and then it, it'll reduce your workload and then you're really focusing on the application students need to start owning where they are what they're supposed to be doing and it's not chasing the grade alone are you really learning are you getting the skills that you want to get to go out and get that job we have to be adults we have to get out of that people have to be more authentic about what they're here for a connie james is an environmental studies major he uses generative ai as a tool for his studies james became interested in ai after watching movies before it became accessible to the general public he was curious and started using it as soon as it became available last year every day i'm doing homework i use it mainly i'm using it for my chemistry homework i'm using it to plug in my chemistry homework problems sometimes just have like a word problem it's really helpful because it'll tell you how to do it too which the google search it and whatnot might not necessarily do that and then it also can always get it right when i plug it in i can kind of it kind of shows like the process of thought that it uses to solve it and it kind of helps was there any specific part of it that like piqued your interest that made you want to continue using it yeah like it was really thorough and it was really i'd also use it for want to summarize something sometimes i do it from writing like cover letters for jobs so it'd be like could you write a cover letter and then i'll like kind of see how it formats it templates it and the words it chooses and it's really articulate it does a better job than me like coming up with a little bit fancier words fancier phrasing or just like well-formatted stuff or any thought hey can I get in trouble for this? Will I get in trouble for this? Not really, because I don't, I won't, I would never like copy something straight from, from it. Like I really just use it as a template. It's like a Google search. I'm doing research. It's giving me its answer. And then with that, I formulate my own answer. How does that process work? Um, a lot of like fact checking. I'll patch GPT, I'll Google search it with my homework. It'll tell me if I get an answer wrong or right. And I have like unlimited attempts to do it. So a lot of times it doesn't get the answer right. And then I'll have to tweak. I'll have to articulate better what my question is to them. I'll have to edit the question or I'll have to, or, or just sometimes it will never get the right answer. And I'll just have to actually do the work. You said a little earlier about like how you use it as Google. Do you feel like students now use it like you? I think some do. I definitely talk to students who like never don't use it either. Definitely a lot of students use it. That's what I've heard a lot of other students say. Oh, I'd use it to like generate an essay and then I'll just to get an image of like what it could their essay could look like like an example and then they'll write their own no one would just copy paste chat gbt because it's not that good you know what I mean have any of your professors any of your friends professors come out and say hey you guys can't use it if you guys use it you guys get in trouble in my class I have a professor who says don't use it for writing your papers because I'll know and I generally don't use it for writing papers especially about i don't know if it's a topic that i know i can write about i'm not gonna use it because i'm just gonna write it but like if something i'm really stuck on i will but for the most part my teachers seem to not care as much my chemistry teacher is pretty pro like us using whatever we can on the internet to find the answer how would you feel say your next year you know, on campus there's a big cut down like regulation of it would kind of suck at the end of the day i've only been using ChatGPT for a year and i've been alive for 21 years so like and i've been in school for what so many of those years it wouldn't be the biggest deal to me it doesn't do anything super makes stuff a little bit easier it's just like extra help but at the end of the day google's the same shit basically you know do you feel like there's a stigma around it if you use chat gpt there there's a stigma around this person doesn't know how to do their work or is lazy i think a lot of people use it and it's kind of a thing now like it's widely adopted it doesn't really mean that you're not smart you can also be more efficient it's just another tool that's at our disposal to be able to use it before we had google we had to like look stuff up in the library right and then google but that made it easier yeah you're commanding it to do the work for you or is it doing the work for you you have to command 
man. Like you have to be specific in what you ask it. You do need to know how to formulate a really direct question that's really clear on what you're trying to get the answer of. For the most part, it's not going to give you the answer. I mean, if it's something trivial or easy, it, it will. But you do have to work it and you have to use your judgment on what it gives you to infer your answer. What would you tell a student out there that's considering like, hey, I have two hours to do this essay or two hours to do this assignment. I'm not gonna finish in time. I don't wanna fail. I'm just gonna put down the question my professor asked me down onto ChatGPT, copy and paste that and turn it in. What would you tell that student? I tell them it's a gamble, it's a risk, but depending on how much time you, they had, they could get away with it. At the same time, ChatGPT is pretty good. You, you might get away with it, depending how conscious your professor is about AI, they might not pick it up. Mikey Pagan is a senior in the Masters of Arts in Comparative Literature. Pagan is neither nor or against AI. Pagan believes AI is interesting because it could one day show us how our thought and linguistic process work. One of the professional affiliations I have to this school is with the linguistics lab, the ECOL, the ensemble lab for com computational linguistics. And we've been working with large language models and in text simplification for several years now. So last semester, we started working with ChatGPT in particular, 3.5, just to sort of like as a way of doing every time there's a, a big new LLM comes out, linguistics often tested against a series of like benchmark tests regarding like how good it is at certain things that humans are really good at like pronoun resolution pragmatic knowledge of the world things like that is your field of work have you seen ai impacted in any ways in terms of the type of work we do as comparatists i don't think is going to be something that is really imitable or achievable by ai in even the near future i don't know if necessarily will ever be just because of like the nature of of synthesizing information and comparing two things isn't something that's going to always be uh, available for it to have been trained. I've heard a lot of arguments about AI takes a lot away from what you actually can bring to your field in terms of education. If you use it, you're sort of cheating yourself of learning a certain skill. How much does that translate to what you see? You know, when it first came out, we saw all the news stuff come out about, oh, high schoolers are writing essays, like la da 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 da. And at the end of the day, people are going to cheat. People are going to use whatever their means are to skate by. And as somebody who really values academic work, that's the incentive to sort of continue uh, sharpening those skills of critical analysis, right? Like it's if somebody's trying to get by with just AI work, but at the same time, if you're only putting out AI work and you're not putting in any of the effort, critically engage with the work that you're putting out, then it's going to be obvious when somebody speaks to you. I don't really see it in terms of cheating or anything like that. I don't really see it as like presenting that much of a problem because it doesn't, because the, the opportunity for cheating is always going to be there regardless of the technologies available. I do think it's worrisome, but I don't think any more so than, than it is with or without AI. As far as it being another tool, do you feel like other people know that too? Or is there some people that are still trying to fight that? I don't come across very many people who are straight up just, that's bad. I don't like it. It's gross, especially not in an institutional setting. No, it's an ethical question. This goes back into, you know, you see it a lot in, in other fields, especially in like biotechnology or computer programming. Anything you create as somebody who works for Google belongs to Google. They're able to just take all the work that you've done and feed that into a machine and just have that work be done over and over and over again. It's going to raise ethical concerns as to what we're going to do with those jobs. And it gets even muddier when we get into creative field. I could train an AI on every episode of Law & Order and it'll probably present at least a couple of fairly decent episodes of Law & Order, but all of that work is coming directly again from creative human labor. And those people are now off the market in that sense. At the end of the day, it's uh, interesting. It's a fascinating tool. I'm not super concerned that it's going to replace art 
in any meaningful way, that we need to be on guard with having our all of our labor, in this case our creative labor, protected from people who might want to like take advantage of that and use this technology to take advantage of that. AI continues to be a controversial topic. SS State faculty hopes that in a year there will be a clearer idea of how helpful AI will be with education, but for now, most discourage its use, even though some professors see the potential as an effective learning tool that argument needs more research. Faculty members want students to come to school to learn and gain the skills necessary to prepare for the working world. This is Luis Cortez reporting for Golden Gate Express.